Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, January 19th, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. First up, how do we talk to international students about safety? Second, why, what do falling numbers on, at the undergraduate level mean in the United States? And finally, how significant is India to Western colleges? We'll answer these three questions and more on the Midweek Roundup for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us for the Midweek Roundup. It's always our pleasure to be coming to you, whether live on Facebook or on repeat on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page, as well as those are faithful podcast listeners. Uh, we're glad to have you a part of our SMIE consulting family. So let's get right to our first question of the day. And this is a question that is at the core of admission officers uh, around the U.S., around the world, that have to address the issue of safety when it comes to international students and uh, what you do it also for your domestic students, I'm sure, depending on where you are in the, in the country or where you are in the world. And for me, in my now 28 years of working in higher education, uh, I began as a domestic admissions counselor at my alma mater, Marquette University in Milwaukee. Uh, urban environments, our campus literally adjacent, right adjacent to the downtown area uh, of the city. Uh, also some areas of our, uh, around our campus that were uh, not the most uh, uh, well-developed and certainly some of the poorer areas of town were very in close proximity to our campus. So this was an issue that as an admissions counselor, certainly as a student, uh, was something we learned in our early days uh, at that university. But when it comes to how do we talk about safety for international students that uh, likely don't have the perspective on the issue of safety the same way we do, uh, for, depending on where they are coming from in the world, depending on their background, that, those types of issues, uh, how are we talking about it? And I've seen in the matter of the, my, my career, the issue of safety, depending on where I was, what institution I was working for, uh, where they were located in the country, uh, I've seen it talked about at least three or four different ways in terms of what safety actually meant. And that's part of the challenge. Uh, we can think very broadly that for our domestic students, when we talk about safety, we're talking about campus crime, we're talking about our, the neighborhood around our campuses. These types of things are what uh, we have to um, communicate effectively uh, to our prospective students. Uh, what I always thought when I was a student at uh, Marquette, in going to a big city, going into a university in a big city, that I needed to be aware of my surroundings. That was one of the first lessons I learned while on campus, uh, that uh, there are parts of town that there's no reason for you to go to, uh, particularly at night, uh, and, 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 and putting yourself at risk. There are just things that you wouldn't do. Uh, you, you pick that up during your orientation sessions and during the first few days and weeks on, class, uh, on campus. But you, you also realize that as an institution, you have a responsibility to provide for the safety of your students. And going to college in the 80s, uh, when uh, there was the big debates on whether, uh, whether universities should have their own uh, 
campus police. Uh, we did at, uh, uh, at Marquette, we call them public safety. Uh, they weren't officially police, but they were public safety officers. Uh, but we had significant uh, safety procedures in place. We had what we call blue light phones all over campus uh, that we could call and then uh, report, report something. It would be a kind of a hotline to our public safety uh, officers. We also had what we called our limo service. Uh, these were uh, basically blue vans that went all the way around the campus area and immediate area adjacent to campus to uh, take students to and from areas that they would need to go to uh, for various activities. So there were things that the university did put in place to help protect our, us as students. So. That, that's something that when I became an admissions officer for the, uh, for the university, and I would talk about crime in, in, in Milwaukee when that question would come up, I would talk about all these services that we had in place and becoming aware of your surroundings. And this is uh, learning how to live in a city. This is uh, when you go new places, do you, or do you take precautions when you are, are, uh, don't know the area? Yes. So talking about that. And the reason I bring this up today as a topic is I look at what I learned at Marquette and how I, when I started doing international recruitment, the issue of safety tended to be, okay, you're in a big city. Uh, we've heard stories about crime in America. It's running rampant, all of these things. How does that play out? Uh, that, was, that was the topic that we, we discussed, um, was personal safety, uh, taking care of uh, your, your possessions and uh, what to do, what not to do, learning where to go, where not to go, those types of things. That was how we talked about it. And we should keep in mind that in the United States, U.S. colleges are required to report campus uh, crime statistics. Uh, there's a national database of this. Uh, and this database has been used by, um, by uh, and is used by universities and colleges to talk about how they, uh, how well, uh, good of a job they're doing with campus safety. Uh, there are, uh, there is a, the data, there's a database that uh, this, they call it, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the U.S. Department of Education Campus Safety and Security Survey. Uh, that's the source of, all, of, of the, these campus crime statistics. Uh, what uh, one of the folks out there, uh, service providers, and one of the major pathway providers in the U.S., Shorelight, uh, they've come up with uh, what they're calling the University Safety Index. And they've plotted along a graph of uh, safest to, safest to uh, least safe or somewhat safe. Uh, they don't have any, anything, anybody below somewhat safe. Uh, they talk about the locations of these institutions and uh, where they are compared to how, how safe, how safe uh, they are based on this U.S. Department of Education campus safe, security, campus safety, safety and security survey. So uh, there, the, the report does show that uh, there's been significant drops in uh, like auto theft and uh, burglary and robbery have, have decreased uh, in the last 20 years. But, uh, but the, what isn't reported is that there have also been uh, excellent, uh, there have been significant increases in sex offenses uh, on, on this 65% uh, uh, from uh, uh, since in a five year period from 2014 to 2019. But that's not reported in, in this, uh, this index. What is also not reported is when you look at, and this is the dichotomy that when we talk about safety on university campuses, 
we, we can rely on these campus security, this, this, the, the campus uh, safety and security report, because that data is all that's required for colleges and universities to, to rep report. We're not, uh, colleges and universities are not required to report the surrounding community that they live in uh, because that's, they don't have control over that necessarily. They don't always have control over what goes on on their own campus, but uh, what has to be reported is what Shorelight is using for this uh, campus uh, safety, uh, how safe our camp U.S. campuses article, and uh, put the links to the initial Shorelight uh, report and then a, a critique of it by a colleague uh, who um, has done, who's out of the UK, uh, he's done, he's actually previously worked for one of these pathway providers, not Shorelight, uh, out, of the, out of the UK, but he has done some critical uh, analysis on some of the, some various stories around the world, and he's, he's one of the first out there uh, talking about agent aggregators and what they look like and uh, some of the <clears throat> potential threats that agent aggregators pose to institutions and quality control and all of these other things. Uh, but also, uh, he's, he's taking a look now at how safety is talked about through the Shorelight Index, uh, University Safety Index. And on the top, the, the most, and there, the graph goes, uh, as I mentioned, the categories of safety. Uh, there is uh, one category uh, on the, the lowest ebb uh, is somewhat safe, then there's safe, then there's... Uh, quite safe. I think. Anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting combination. And, but uh, on the far, the, the safest category, uh, they also rank, they all have a sliding scale on uh, number of international students, more international students, less international students. So uh, in the most international students, in the most, in the most safe category, uh, you have Washington, D.C. As, as, as the place for uh, the uh, the, sa the safest campuses are in uh, Washington, D.C. And he, uh, Alan Priest is the commentator who uh, is critiquing uh, this uh, Shorelight piece, uh, Shorelight Safety Index. Uh, and he, he says, well, he, he quotes the, some of the very real statistics about uh, Washington, D.C. being uh, the, the most ha having the most violent crime rate per 100,000 inhabitants in 2020. So uh, one of uh, Shorelight's partners, American University, is in D.C., uh, and they've put uh, Washington, D.C. in the safest category uh, with the more, most international students. So interesting uh, to see this report after, after I think, Washington, D.C., I think they have Vermont in, uh, in that safest category as the next uh, highest uh, percentage international and uh, safe and safety-wise. So there, it's, it's really interesting uh, how his critique of, of the Shorelight University Safety Index, but it reflects for me going back well, 28 years in, in the industry when I started talking about this issue, is how safety is thought about overseas is going to be different depending on where who you're talking to at the time you're talking to them. Uh, when I uh, my wife and I, we moved to England after uh, we, uh, immediately after we got married. Uh, it was our honeymoon. Uh, both working at an international school outside of uh, London. 
And every school break, we're going to a different place in Europe. And we're visiting places that I'd traveled to as a recruiter before, uh, and that was great for us. But what it was interesting about safety, uh, as we talked about it there, we, it was in a very uh, suburban, uh, all nearly rural, but a very rural campus, very wide open campus, uh, lots of acreage, sports fields, all of that. And a very, but a very safe campus. We had guard, uh, guards at the gates, and uh, it was, a, it was a, a pricey school that a lot of expats sent their children to. Over half the school, um, I, well over half the school were non-Americans. It was an American-style school. I had IB uh, in, the, in the high school. It was a pre-K through 12th grade, so it, was, it had a boarding school element as well. So very, very well-known school. And safety there was, was a non-issue, really. It was m minor theft and things that happened uh, between students in the boarding area, that type of thing. But no nothing really ever rose to the level of what we considered uh, an important safety issue. I moved back. Uh, we moved back to the U.S. and uh, we moved to um, South Bend, Indiana. I was working at St. Mary's College right across the street from uh, Notre Dame. And safety there, I learned from a couple of my colleagues uh, who had been there for a number of years, uh, who had done some international recruitment. Uh, when they, they had the safety talk, uh, so for those not familiar with South Bend, it's a, it's a, it's a medium-sized city, but the, on the north end of where the campuses are, a very rural area, uh, very suburban rural area. So nothing uh, too outlandish. There are certainly parts of South Bend that students never really went to, uh, and as, as any urban area might have. Uh, nothing there for them to do, uh, uh, and uh, certainly is, would be a, just you learn where not to go, where to go, and wherever you go. But the, when a colleague who was, had done some international travel for this institution uh, before I arrived, uh, she was talking to a family, not sure if it was in Latin America or if it was uh, in China, but uh, they asked the question about how safe uh, is the campus there uh, in, in, uh, in, in South Bend. It's actually Notre Dame, Indiana, was the postal code. But then uh, uh, the, the representative was talking uh, from St. Mary's was talking about, well, it's, a, it's in a very safe and secure environment. Uh, it's a, a campus removed from main, main road. Uh, very uh, residence halls are secure. Very little crime on that front. On, on that front. And then the parents said, no, no, we've been hearing about uh, all these tornadoes that come through. And that was the level of concern the parents and, and her student, who I can't remember who, it's, who, who it was, who was asking about it. But they, uh, the, the question was really about safety from weather. Uh, and that is a very different perspective on safety than most U.S. colleges representatives when they're talking about safety to overseas students and parents would, would have, to, have to have. But, yeah, learning that uh, for, in some places in the world it, they hear stories about tornadoes and uh, in the Midwest, yes, there are tornadoes every once in a while, and had we had any in South Bend, and uh, that was that was how we had to respond to that question. But uh, moving from that campus to um, to another in Indiana, we were part of a 
uh, part of uh, the Destination Indiana State Consortium uh, for International Education, promoting the state as a destination for international students. There was a time post 9-11 uh, where anyone who was working on campus at that time knew that uh, you had you needed to be looking out for your for your Muslim students, particularly your Arab students, male male Arab students on your campus, because they uh, were targets of hate crimes, uh, and if if not worse, and that was something that was particularly concerning to us as obviously international uh, educators that we had to make sure our students were taken care of. There were things we wanted to do to help them. Uh, be more secure in their in their environments. That th things that they needed to know and uh, about uh, about the, the campus area and, and just <clears throat> about <clears throat> the kinds of issues that uh, they had heard stories about. Uh, uh, traffic stops for for male Muslim students were uh, really out of order, um, and and there was a significant concern. And post 9/11, that uh, tapped into a lot of uh, frustration much like we saw with um, Trump's election. Uh, there was a lot of frustration, uh, uh, reaction that uh, was caused with some of his travel bans, calling them Muslim travel bans. There were hi highlights of that that we saw post 9-11 happening during the Trump administration. Uh, so that <clears throat> those kinds of, um, of issues become very significant. We've also seen <clears throat> In recent years, uh, certainly again with the Trump administration, anti-Asian um, crime, hate, Asian hate crimes against Asians, uh, East Asians have certainly been on the rise uh, during the Trump administration and this hangover effect in, into the Biden administration as well because the, because the politics uh, were pushing that agenda, that there was this uh, trade war going on with China, a cultural war going on with China. And then there was the virus that started in China and how and everything, there were, there were elements of American society that reacted to that. And uh, when the president said it's the Wuhan flu or the China flu, uh, that, that became a touch point for a lot of people. And then the less educated among, among us that, uh, that uh, listen to that and take that on board and really uh, drives what they do, they, um, <clears throat> Uh, that became a reality for for certain element of society, and they took a, a doubt on anyone who looked Asian, East Asian, uh, and even though they might be American citizens, uh, that uh, just the illogic, the irrationality of it, that's is is, is nearly impossible to guard against uh, in terms of protecting our students. But that's a reality that U.S. colleges have had to had to face. Uh, remember seeing a, a video just short, just a, a week or two ago, um, from uh, a student at at Syracuse, a Chinese student at Syracuse University, that right at the beginning of the pandemic, when it was in March, uh, February, March was when it was com coming clear that this was going to be much bigger than anyone thought it was going to be, uh, and that this is when uh, Chinese students were starting to become under threat. She recorded a song in Chinese, uh, recorded a video and of her on campus uh, offering hugs at the beginning of the pandemic with a mask on. She was fully masked the whole time uh, to to students, and it, it was it was a message of of of, of love and not of uh, fear, and that uh, she was offering she would wear a blindfold and wear and wear and wear her mask and offer hugs to people who just needed that that touch point. So. That kind of thing is, is really 
was a safety is is and has been a, a safety concern for for Chinese students. And there's a there's there's, a, there's an article that we're, we'll reference in uh, in we reference in our newsletter this week. All the SMIE news fit to share. I talked about this issue on uh, of, of the issue of crime against Chinese students. There have been two Chinese students murdered in the last year uh, on on or near their college campuses, uh, and that's that's increasingly impacting Chinese students. Whether those uh, whether that's actually quantifiable or it's uh, there was an international education agency based in China that that put out this uh, was quoted in the Pi News article about this and uh, that they're saying it's negatively impacting uh, Chinese student interest. Uh, and then there are these 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 articles appear fairly regularly whenever there's this kind of a issue uh, when a Chinese student was uh, murdered down at uh, University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, uh, Urbana-Champaign, that, that, that was a, a big fear then, uh, that Chinese students would stay away. But uh, they, have in, 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 they haven't been coming in, into the U.S. Uh, for in, in as great a numbers as they have been in the past, but that was been, had already been a trend that had been on the way down since probably 2014, 2015, where they probably peaked in the U.S., so we'll see what uh, happens with this safety issue, but the, the real, real concern here is are we um, what, defining what we're talking about when we're talking about safety with uh, students from particular areas because it may be different than what we're thinking. So it's always good to just take a, take a beat and think about, okay, what, what and ask, maybe answer, answer that question, uh, what are you talking, when you think about safety, what are you thinking about? What, 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 what is motivating that question? So it's a, it's a matter of perspective, and we talk about that all the time here on the Roundup, uh, that uh, having the right perspective on what your audience is actually wanting to, to learn is, uh, is, is really uh, where we need to start our conversations uh, rather than where we finish them. So uh, that's a, a very interesting topic, an ongoing one, one, a topic that's not going away. It's certainly been around for, for many decades in, in how we talk about international education in the United States. So moving on to our second question of the day. Uh, what do falling undergraduate numbers mean in the United States? And for those who are not on the, on the enrollment management side, this may be uh, a more of a, a, not a newsflash, but uh, an impact of what's happening on, in the United States. <clears throat> now back up a little bit. Uh, to say that uh, the United States is goes through these cycles, as does every country, with the birth rates and uh, and when the, when we see bubbles burst and drop offs and cliffs and uh, troughs and all of these wonderful uh, sounds like uh, weather formations. But uh, you have these um, trends in in your graduating student populations each year and from high school uh, that you see. Um, we know that in 2024. Uh, 2025, 26, there will be a demographic cliff that the U.S. will go off. Uh, and it's, it sounds more dramatic than it is, but in certain parts of the United States uh, that have been seeing declining populations or declining birth rates, uh, particularly in the Northeast, uh, some of the Midwest, uh, you, with population, population migration to the to the south and the west of the United States, uh, certain parts of the country are going to have real significant demographic drop-offs. Uh, even some parts of the west are now going to be experiencing this in 2025. But uh, what this means is you see uh, 
these when you have a declining number of your domestic students being uh, graduating from uh, from high school each year, you have a smaller population that you, as an institution, can go out and recruit. That would be your bread and butter, where you get the majority of your students from each year. So uh, that drop off uh, causes. Night, sleepless nights for enrollment managers around the country, uh, and they look, and institutions more broadly look for, okay, uh, if you're a state institution and you know that uh, that cliff is happening actually in 2024 for you because uh, you're a year ahead of the curve in, in, in terms of declining birth rates and, and that type of thing. So you maybe saw this coming back in Back in, uh, if we're talking about 2024, we're talking about 18 years ago, 2006, uh, there were low, very low birth rates in the United States. I think they're saying 2025 uh, because they go back 17 years and they look at 2008 and the Great Recession uh, that hit and people weren't having babies as much. Uh, there were declining birth rates that year. So that's that's the logic is okay. There's that hasn't been comp over that hasn't been hasn't been compensated by higher immigration of people with uh, with kids that age already. So when that happens, there's a, a demographic cliff and panic ensues uh, on three or four years in advance of when that's happening to plan for. Okay, how do we recruit students more broadly to compensate for this domestic? Uh, cliff that we're going off. If you're a state school, does that mean ramping up your out-of-state recruitment in different parts of the country? Uh, does that, and if, again, nothing happens automatically, you, turn, you don't flick a switch and suddenly everybody from California will now come to your school in Rhode Island. Uh, <clears throat> so you think about these things on a, on a longer term scale. Uh, one thing that a lot of colleges have done, particularly in the, in, since 9-11, have looked at <clears throat> international students as a, uh, a real source of potential uh, growth or compensation for the loss of domestic student revenue, uh, or at least in, uh, for public schools, those ones that you're losing from your state. You're looking out of state, you're looking at international as where you need to draw uh, your uh, additional students from to make up for the demographic losses you're going to be facing domestically? Or do you go all in on better financial aid packages for those domestic students so you can get a, a greater slice of the pie? But what does that do to your discount rate and uh, your overall uh, net tuition revenue and all these other wonderful statistics that go flying around? So interesting to see uh, what how colleges will be responding. Uh, there is, in addition to the demographic cliff that is happening in, in three or two to, th two to four years, you also have kind of a pandemic effect here because uh, not only did we have, are we look, moving towards a point where we're going to have a domestic drop off in high school graduation numbers, we are also seeing uh, since the beginning of the pan pandemic with the economic impact it's had on the country, particularly those in the middle to lower income uh, area uh, brackets of, of uh, domestic students and families, you have colleges have lost, and the, the Chronicle story from this that came out last week, colleges have lost more than 475,000 students uh, during, the, during the pandemic. And that's a decline from, uh, fall 20, from to fall 21 uh, 2.7% drop from a year earlier, and that's a decline of 476,000. So that's combined with, uh, in fall 2020, uh, a 3.1% decline. 
in new undergraduate starts uh, that are undergraduate enrollment that was down 465,000. So in the course of two years, we have nearly a million fewer enrolled students in the United States. And that's it just boggles the mind when you think about it. So there's something like um, in terms of uh, in terms of what those numbers that uh, you, you can see the drop off kind of happening earlier. It happened most at private for profit institution four year schools. And you see um, you see the least effect was uh, at private nonprofit four year schools. Uh, Eleven percent down at private for-profit four years, private nonprofit four years down only two point two percent. But overall, a three point one percent drop year on year, twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. So there's obviously pandemic impacts in this. There are students that are uh, deciding to go into the workforce right away uh, that are uh, saying, "Hey, I got to help my family out, uh, and we got to we got to make money for." Um, for our families, uh, for I got to save for my education. I can't afford to go to school right now because my uh, parents can't afford it. Uh, all of these things are very real impacts on enrollment. So, kind of a double effect with a con coming domestic cliff that we're driving off in the U.S. Plus, what's happening with the pandemic? Fewer domestic students coming. Uh, I see many more institutions cranking up their international recruitment again because they're going to have to compensate. They're either going to have to downsize their institutions, and for some that might be more realistic than others, uh, that, but most are going to say, okay, we need to compensate. We need to keep our balances right uh, in terms of our overall uh, student, um, student populations, and international is going to be a big piece of this. Uh, one of the colleges that I've been working with in, over the last year, they've kind of seen this coming. Uh, in terms of the domestic drop-off, uh, they're in a part of the country that has been seeing some uh, some of the drop-off, but not nearly as significant as others. Uh, uh, other places are expecting in the next two to three years. So, but they have identified uh, international as a main um, area that they can grow, because uh, frankly, they've never done it intentionally before, and they're realizing that they can with uh, with some real change that needs to happen on, on the institutional level to make it a, a priority uh, for their entire campus, not just uh, two or three people in the admissions office, that uh, you can now, um, we can do more to bring in inter overseas students, but also they're, they're looking to aggressively grow their overall population uh, at their institutions so, as well. So uh, there, you get colleges and presidents that come in that have these ambitious plans and uh, uh, if they're backed and have support across campus, then you really see movement uh, and you can see some amazing things happen. Um, <clears throat> but I do see this overall trend, a downward trend of undergraduate enrollments is going to drive a lot of colleges to start seeking international markets that they can grow um, to compensate. And that's, that is a good thing if you're an international educator. Uh, and if you're at an institution that understands the demographic shifts and realizes that those shifts don't happen overnight, uh, that it takes planning and that you, there is investment that's going to be needed to get you to where you want to be internationally. If you haven't been significantly active in a particular market, you're going to need to up your game and up your commitment to, uh, to recruit students effectively in new markets. 
So that's uh, that's that's a positive thing for international education, and in the United States, I think you you're going to see more institutions. Uh, that frankly, over the last two to three years, probably had some a lot of knee-jerk reactions. Uh, we've heard stories of departments, entire international recruitment offices being shuttered uh, during the pandemic, uh, staff laid off uh, or, or let go, senior folks had been there 20 plus years let go. And that happened country, countrywide. Um, not everywhere, obviously, but there are a number of schools that said international pandemics going to kill us. Uh, and we need to we need to turn off that faucet and turn else turn something else on. Whether they've been able to do that successfully or not in the last two years, I doubt it. But uh, there are going to be more institutions that might have taken that approach two years ago that are now going, oh, that maybe that was a little premature, and we're facing this demographic lift, and we're already down in, in undergraduate enrollments. We need to bump back up what, to what we're doing internationally. Let's hope they get there. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, lots, a lot of, uh, lot of moving parts, obviously, with, uh, with enrollments on college campuses and a lot of, um, a lot of decisions that are, are made up the chain that uh, may or may not impact you in a positive way, so if you're in the uh, enrollment game. So we'll, we'll certainly keep our eyes on this and, and monitor these trends because there's certainly quite a bit to, to think about here. And we're going to wrap up today with the third question, how significant is India to Western colleges? And this is a quick one, and I'm going to point out just a couple of brief articles that have popped in the last week. Uh, One of them is uh, uh, an expansion by one of the major uh, agent providers, one of the major international um, education organizations, IDP. Uh, They had already had significant presence in India, uh, India being the second largest student market in the world. Uh, they, uh, th- they're recruiting students th- for, uh, through IDP for Australian, UK, Canadian, US, uh, and New Zealand institutions. Uh, they are, uh, have now added, they already had I think about 40 plus offices in India. They've added a further 23 offices, now have um, uh, expanded into uh, a number of tier two, tier three cities that many of which, and for me, I've been recruiting in, in India since 2005. Some of these, some of these places I've, I've never heard of, <laughs> and, and, and not that I'm an India expert, but uh, having traveled there for, for 15, 16 years, uh, to, he- to start hearing some of the cities where they're opening offices is really encouraging because they're responding to demand. Uh, demand in those areas to to provide more direct service to students in those markets, and that's encouraging for institutions that are looking to to better dive into uh, India as a market. Uh, they've maybe always had success on the graduate level, might be starting to look for some success on the undergrad level, but also expand maybe the diversity of students from from India that are. Uh, coming to their institutions because it is a, an amazingly broad and diverse country uh, that has um, uh, has some just a, some amazing uh, students in some very uh, unique places and I, I think uh, I, I was at an institution that once that had uh, probably 90 95 percent of its Indian students were from one location in in India one state uh, in India and that uh, that had an impact on the rest. Uh, but it, uh, there, there's so much po- potential in India to grow, uh, not just at the uh, graduate level, but also at the undergraduate level. IDP expanding there is a, is a positive sign. I think that's uh, certainly uh, welcome. Uh, what, I, what I would say on the kind of the far extreme of this 
Uh, another story has hap- happened in Quebec. Uh, we talked last week in, uh, in Canada about Ontario colleges, uh, public colleges, and a lot of them uh, vocational schools or private vocational schools that are heavily dependent on Indian uh, students. Uh, I think it was 60 plus percent of, um, 68% of uh, international students at these um, public, uh, these colleges, uh, vocational colleges in Ontario were from India. Uh, in India, or countrywide in Canada, India is the number one uh, source for students. I think they're closing on, closing in on 50% there, um, of their international students are from India, uh, across the country. But uh, this story uh, comes from uh, CBC in Quebec, or in Quebec, talking about uh, uh, some three international, three private colleges, private Quebec private colleges, more like the vocational ones that we're talking about. Uh, with Ontario last week, have filed for creditor protection. Uh, that because they're, they're they've they've had some major hits uh, over the last year, uh, last couple of years, and have basically left. And there's a recruiting firm, at plus three three colleges are all uh, part of this uh, kind of network um, of uh, colleges and, and this recruitment firm to uh, for the heavily dependent on international students. Uh, for their these vocational colleges, uh, that the the that these the, there was there's been a, a history in the last couple of years. Um, Ten private colleges uh, last year uh, were su- suspended by the province, including uh, the th- the three that we're talking about here for what it was to, what was described as questionable recruitment practices for students in India, and that suspension meant that the schools were temporarily prevented from accepting certain foreign student applications and that uh, the province investigated the college and, and, and looked into these, these issues. Uh, what is just boggling the mind, those students that are, were caught in the lurch, that were sold a bill of goods, are now uh, asking for refunds. They, they've paid twenty-eight dollars to $30,000 to attend these schools uh, in over a two-year period. And what is just boggles the mind here, these three colleges that have just filed for creditor protection, the, the ones that have been prevented the last, last year from uh, recruiting uh, internationally or bringing in certain students from abroad, they have, among their total students uh, at the three colleges, 95%, there are 1,177 students at the three colleges, 95% of these are students, all students, not just domestic students and international students, all students, 95% are from India. And that's just, that's just, um, that's not sustainable. And when you, when you, no wonder they're, they're filing for creditor protection. They haven't been able to recruit students. And when 95% of your students come from one country, and that country is where the source of the uh, problems are in terms of the recruitment practices that they've been accused of, uh, then yeah, you're gonna need, need protection. So no surprise that this happened. But certainly, it's a cautionary tale for all we talk about uh, becoming overly dependent on any one country for your uh, for your international students. A number of U.S. colleges uh, bought the bought into the China China gravy train back in the early '90s, and they've paid the consequences 15 years later, where those numbers have dropped off a cliff because they didn't really invest long term. They just uh, rode the gravy train, didn't really do anything to maintain it. Some schools have. They've developed offices and strong relationships in, in country, so they've, they've survived. But when you have 30 40% of your international students, or more in this case, 95% of your total student body from one country, and you have issues there, 
then you're going to have some creditor problems, uh, and much bigger problems indeed than that. But uh, India is um, going to continue to be, uh, and increasingly so, I think, a major supplier of, of students and uh, I think relationships, uh, uh, co college to college relationships will, will grow as uh, though probably not as quickly as we may li might like in the United States with the new national education policy. It's going to take years to implement and the formal agreements on in-country uh, campuses is going to be limited, and, uh, but agreements certainly are starting to move forward. Uh, so we'll see. We'll certainly track that, and I think in certain countries it's going to be much more important to have stronger presence in India than others. So that's all we have for you today on the Roundup. I appreciate you sticking with us for this extended episode, but a lot of meaty topics here today. And we look forward to chatting with you again in the days and weeks to come. Cheers.